You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Cole Hudson is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. Go ahead and be turning in your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 12. Uh, Again, that is verses 1 through 12, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I just want to share with you uh, something that uh, has been on my heart for many years. And this morning, we're again looking at discipling the next generation, uh, taking a break from uh, our study through the Gospel of John, and looking forward to the opportunity to uh, be looking into that again in June. Uh, But excited for you, because next week you will be hearing from Brother Craig Carlisle, our uh, DOM here in the Etowah Baptist Association, and then the next week you'll be hearing from Brother Brandon Cook. And so we are excited uh, for this time in May to be able to uh, uh, just take a little bit of a break and then jump right back into the Gospel of John. But again, as we're turning this morning, I want to share with you a a fact that you may not know, or you might, uh, because I believe that this is indicative of the church as a whole. If you talk to almost any church and ask what they see as the biggest issues that they'll face in coming years, what you'll find is that almost every church, especially the genuine and honest ones, will describe a need to reach the next generation. As a pastor, I've visited many churches, I've worked in quite a few, and uh, even before we came here to Bellevue and we were seeking where God was leading us and we uh, interviewed with churches, you hear this all the time. Every one of those situations, churches want to know, what can we do to reach the next generation? English poet Alexander Pope wrote this. He says, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. When new trees are planted, a stake is often put into the ground beside the tree, and the stake is there for a purpose, to train the tree to grow straight and tall. In the old days, uh, when they would build ships' hulls, the way that they would do that would be to tie the seedling over in such a way that it was bent into a U-shape so that as the tree grew, it would grow into this giant U-shaped beam that they could then use as the frames um, for the bottom of the boat. And so this truth is, is true. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree. In the same way, God has purposed the Christian family to be the stake beside the next generation. Of course, the church has a role in that. The church is to do as we're doing today. We are to encourage you as families and as Christians to live out your faith seriously and biblically. We're going to call you to recognize God's grace in your life and to glorify him. But I want you to understand today that it doesn't matter if you are 90 years old and your kids are grown, you have the ability and the divine calling on your life to impact your family and future generations with gospel truth. For the glory of God. Second Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. We see from that verse that apparently the grandmother was the first believer, and then the mother, and then the son. Even the grandmother can influence future generations. The question is, how do we disciple the next generation? We know as Christians, we've heard it, that that we're to train up a child in the way that they should go, but what does that look like from a true biblical perspective? And so today, we are going to turn our attention to Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 12, to answer that question. 
I'll be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, today we come before you, Lord, thanking you so much for Again, your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, it is my prayer today that as we look into your word and as you reveal your truth to us even now, that Father, you would use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your message to your people. That Father, that you would encourage us and convict us where we need it. That Father, you would equip us for the tasks that you have ahead of us. Father, we pray today that by looking into your word again, we would have a greater understanding of who you are and, Lord, what you have called us to do with our lives. So, Father, help us to walk in the word which you have given us. Lord, help us to see and understand this truth today and to apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see here is that Israel was getting ready to go into the promised land. The Lord is commanding Moses to teach this command to the people. Why? Specifically, that they may do well and that you and your son and your son's son would fear the Lord and keep his word. That's what we're after, right? I mean, how many of us would would say that we would love to see our son and our son's son fear the Lord and keep his word? As a church, we want to ensure that the gospel and the fear of the Lord is passed down to future generations. The obedience to God's word was the determining factor for the future of Israel. God covenanted with them in his grace to bless them if they did his word. And what happens here is that Moses is summing all that up in a key statement here in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that word here is is very important. In the Hebrew, the word is Shema. And over the years, this is the most famous passage in the Old Testament, especially to the Jews. They recite this, and it's very important to them because it was a reminder. And we're going to talk about that more later uh, in just a few moments. But the word here in Hebrew, it doesn't simply mean to hear, 
but it means to listen. To hear and to listen, or to hear to listen. Keeping with this theme, we all know that there are kids out there who hear what you say, but do not listen to what you say. I remember specifically as a kid getting in trouble for deliberately disobeying. Um, And what that meant was that I had heard what I was supposed to do, but I did not listen to it. That same thing here is a biblical principle for us, even as adults. Uh, This is addressed to the adults in Israel. James said, don't be hearers only, but doers. True hearing, as Deuteronomy is calling for, is that we hear and obey. And for Israel, this would be of vital importance, and for us, it is of vital importance. Hear the word this morning. Hear how God was calling them to live as his people and see future generations do the same. How do we do it? How do we disciple the next generation? How can we make a generational gospel impact? I want to show you three ways that we can do that this morning. The first one is to love the God of the Bible. To love the God of the Bible. What did Moses specifically tell them to hear? What did he want them to grasp? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. When it comes to what we are to hear and obey, Moses begins with a doctrinal statement of who God is. And then he calls the people to love that one true God with all of their heart, soul, and might. And so what we can understand from this is that, quite simply, it's not enough to love just any God. We can't love any old God or any idea of God. It's not enough to slap God or Jesus' name on things and love that, but rather we must love the God of the Bible. Because here's the thing, we cannot disciple kids or family or friends or anyone to a God that we do not know. If we do not know the way, people have no business following us. And so we see from Moses' statement here that the object of our worship, our love, our adoration is to be the God of the Bible. Not our feelings. Not the God of what we wish the Bible said. That's not it. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Classic example of the wrong thing to do here would be uh, one of our founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson claimed to worship God. But he cut out anything in the Bible he didn't like. Made his own. And his so-called Bible is an abomination. It's not enough to just love what we like from the Bible. It's not enough to just love a few attributes of God, but we are called to love God as he is in truth. We cannot love any conception of God except the biblical truth of who he is. And this seems elementary, right? We're here at church and we're like, of course, we're supposed to love the God of the Bible. But our God has specifically and definitively said who he is. And what's so difficult about this is that we are to worship him, not some made-up version that just agrees with what we think. The statement of Moses here is important. It's It's a Trinitarian statement, which sometimes for us is a little bit scary and confusing. Trinitarian language can get confusing, it can get intense, but we need to understand it as best we can in order to worship God to the best of our ability. 
The Hebrew word here, it means not just one, but a compound unity, right? There's a different word for just one simply. We worship one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We worship one God in three persons as the Bible reveals him. Not what culture says, not what anything else says, but what the Bible says. This is our God. He is one. And we are to love him, again, with all of our heart, mind, and strength. The Bible tells us in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. We love that verse, uh, and it is a, a fantastic verse, but people misunderstand this a lot. This verse is, is about God loving us first, and it's not like dating, right? Like sometimes we, we talk about this, and I, I've heard people use this uh, description before to say that this is like dating, right, where one person liked the other person first, and then the other one kind of had to come around to it. That's not what's being said here. What this verse is telling us is that we are only able to love because God first loved us. He loved us before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. He loves us, and then he sent his son to bear the punishment we deserved, and he sent his spirit to give us new life. And because we are a new creation, we're now able to truly love him and love others. It's only because God has loved me that I'm able to love him. It's only because he has lavished his grace on me that I'm able to love other people because they are difficult And it was not that God saw anything lovely or worthy in us, but because of his grace. And he says the same thing to Israel right here in the next chapter. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 10, he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faith those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him, but he will repay him to his face. So we love God because he is holy and gracious and faithful. He's shown this great love to us, and and because he is so good and so gracious and so faithful, we are called to love him with all of our heart, mind, and might. But what's so important is that these are internal things. I've asked people before, as I hope you have, if they love the Lord. Just a simple question. Do you you love God? Do you love Jesus? And a lot of times what happens in in even this and in evangelistic encounters is they will respond, well, I go to church and I help the poor and I serve in this way or that way. What I want you to know is that's not answering the question. Here is what is so important. The type of love God is looking for in us. The love that he calls us to is focused on internal love. This is not to say that God doesn't want external expressions of love, but he wants them to flow out of a heart that is regenerate and that loves him. Anyone can go through the motions. Anyone can say some prayers. Anyone can show up and help people out. There are tons of atheists that are involved in humanitarian aid. But we're not just called to outward expression 
If we're here and and we don't have, again, this love in our heart, the Bible calls that a, a noisy banging gong, a creaking gate. This is the worship of the Pharisee, and it's what God condemns in Amos 5. In Amos 5, 21 through 27, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you in the exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, Amos 5 is a... It's a tough passage. In this passage, God hates their worship, even though they were outwardly performing it correctly. They were going to the feast. They're they're going and they're making these offerings. They're singing the songs. But even though they were outwardly performing it correctly, they truly worshiped something else inside them, with their heart, with their soul, and with their might. It is our heart, our mind, our might that we are to worship God with, which will lead us to worshiping him with our hands and our actions. Connecting point here is this. Jesus said whatever is in the heart comes out. So if we don't love God with all of our heart and our soul and our might, when we're in a bad situation, that love won't come out. But if we do love God with all of our heart and our soul and our might, then we're in a situation where we need to apply God's word and live it out. It will flow out. Now, this is hugely important because so many people, especially the next generation, is disillusioned with the church because they are hypocritical. You know what that happens? You know how that happens? It's because people go to church and they serve and they do things and they check all the boxes and people say, you're a great follower of the Lord because of these things that you do but they don't truly love the God of the Bible. So when a minor inconvenience or even a big problem comes along, the love of God does not flow from their heart, but something else does. And people see that and they go, that's not what the Bible says, that's inconsistent. Or they love a fake version of God that they create, but the result is the same. Unless we love the God of the Bible, the love of God will not flow from our hearts and we will not be the kind of people that God is pleased with. Sproul said that this passage is about total devotion, right? Not partway, but with all we have. And I want you to understand the Great Commission was given to believers. They were to go and make disciples. If we want to see the next generation follow God, then what we need to understand is that we cannot teach others to love a God that we have not first loved, If you want to influence people for Christ, you better love the sovereign, holy, gracious God of the Bible with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. The second way that we disciple the next generation is to actively teach the word of God. And you're going, that is the most obvious thing I've ever heard. But read Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. 
You see, what this is telling us is that when we love the God of the Bible, we love the Bible. You can't say, oh, I love God, but I don't like the Bible. I don't like to read it or hear it or hear it preached or sing about it. If we love the God of the Bible, we will love the Bible and it will dwell in our hearts. But we're called here not only to love the word and to know it ourselves, but to teach it specifically here to the next generation, to children. The word here says that we're to teach them diligently. Now the idea behind the Hebrew word is to sharpen like a sword. We talk a lot about sending our kids out as missionaries in Christianity. And I'm all for that. But you better believe that if you send your kid out as a missionary into this world and they are not sharpened and they are not taught in the word and they're not secure in the word, then we are throwing them to the wolves rather than sending them in power. We are to sharpen children in the word. How? The Bible says talk of them at home. When you're sitting, walking, laying down, getting up, bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorpost of your home. Remember earlier how I said that the Jews recited the Shema as a reminder not to follow other gods? They did this, and, and the way that they would do it is they would sit there and they would recite it. The Lord is Echad, is how they would say it. So, Yehovah Echad, Yehovah Echad, Yehovah Echad. Why? So that when they were tempted to follow Baal or Asherah or Moloch, they would remember, no, our God is Jehovah and Jehovah is one. They didn't realize it, but it functioned again as a creed, a reminder of doctrine. And we should teach our kids the word of God so that when they are confronted with temptation, they are sharp and ready to stand strong. The question that we often have, though, is how do I do that? It's easy for you to say as a preacher... But from this text, we see two easy ways, or two simple ways, rather, that we can do this. It's a positive and a negative. Positively, we need to teach them godly things. Later on in this chapter, in verses 20 through 25, it says this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. What's so amazing about this is that the Bible tells us how to do it. We talk about biblical things. Kids are by nature curious. And if we're following God's word, inevitably they will ask, why do we do this church stuff? especially in a world in which it is not as frequent. And our answer should not be because I said so. It should be an explanation of God's character and his faithfulness and his grace to us. To explain why we follow the Bible and why we do what God says. And what is so amazing is that the Bible, again, it tells us. We need to talk about biblical things. 
If the only time you talk about the Bible is on Sunday morning, then you are missing out. The Bible says that we're to do this when we're together at home. Talk about the Bible. We put so much emphasis, oh gosh, we put so much emphasis, specifically as like conservative people in the South, on family and spending time together as a family. And it's a great thing, right? Like family game night is awesome. Family movie night is awesome. Anything we can do as a family, family dinners are awesome. But family discussion of the word, family worship, those are things that don't just bring you closer as a family. They are things that bring your family closer to God. Prioritize it. Make time when you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're coming, when you're going, when you're laying down or getting up. Basically, the more that we read this and dig into it and pour over it, we find that we should really be teaching our families about the Bible all the time. Use those other activities to teach biblical principles. Everything else we do should serve to help us in this way. Some of the best discipleship that I ever had happened at ball games or in a deer stand or on vacation. But it came from people and parents and friends intentionally desiring to teach the word to the next generation. I want you to understand, kids are smarter than you think. Like, especially historically. Um, If you don't believe me, uh, I would encourage you, look up the catechisms. Right, I taught through some of these uh, in the past at churches on Sunday nights. And people would say, wow, this is so deep and this is so powerful. It's a lot to grasp. But kids, little kids, were learning this deep theology and they memorized it and they grew up and they preached in the Great Awakenings and they went on mission and they led churches. We need to teach our kids to sharpen them so that they can go out effectively. They can handle it. There was a tweet I saw a while back that said basically if we can teach our kids complex NFL style defenses and we can teach them algebra and we can teach them all kinds of other stuff then we can teach them deep theological concepts. So we teach them godly things. But there's also the other side of that. And that's negatively teaching. Which means that not only should we teach them godly things but we should guard them from ungodly things. The idea of binding the word to hands and head and doorpost was taken literally by the Jews, and it still is. They use these things called phylacteries, or tephilim, that they wrap around themselves, and they have little boxes that contain pieces of Hebrew scripture. They have mezuzahs, which are literal containers that are on their doorposts. But I think especially here for us, as we look at and interpret this passage, that's not what I'm advocating for. What I would tell you is to think of this for us symbolically. Now, of course, if you want to put the word of God on your house, go for it. But I think that there's a deeper theological truth here, and it is this. Make sure that whatever enters your home or your head is filtered through the word. The verse encourages the word to be like blinders on our eyes and to be at the doorposts of our home. These are entryways. The entry our mind, and our home. We need to guard ourselves. What comes into our minds and our homes, but we better guard our families. We better be careful about what we allow 
in there. And the way that we determine what comes in is not subjective, it's not arbitrary, it's not legalistic, it's not just being a prude. It is the standard of the word. And that is yet another reason why we need to know what the word says. If we know what the word says, and we can filter everything through that. We need to understand the world has admitted to seeking to indoctrinate your children. We have seen it from massive children's entertainment boardrooms to the news, to the stores, to the clothes we wear, and everything else. Everything is seeking to indoctrinate and disciple our families for us. To make them what they think they ought to be. But we are called as Christians not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed, to prepare the next generation by God's grace. There can be no outsourcing. It must be active. Maybe you're here today and you are a great-great-great-grandma and your kids are grown. Or maybe you're thinking there's nothing that you can do because you don't have kids. And that is a lie from the devil on all accounts. Discipleship has no age limit. I want to show you specifically two reasons why. This age idea is is the first one that's ridiculous. Titus 2, verses 2 through 8, talks about this specifically. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What we see here is that if you are old, disciple the next generation. Teach them. The cool thing about being old is there's a lot of people younger than you and you got a lot of experience. Be a biblical example. But secondly, I want you to understand that there are also spiritual orphans looking for men and women to disciple them and to teach them. How many kids do we have in this community who have no parents doing these things? Be a spiritual parent. Be an active discipler of the next generation by teaching them what God's word says and guarding them from ungodly things. Thirdly and finally, we do this by not forgetting the Lord in prosperity. Love the God of the Bible. Actively teach the word And thirdly, don't forget the Lord in a time of prosperity. We see that from verses 10 through 12. Now, we had a saying growing up on the farm in South Alabama, and that was that mules cannot handle prosperity. They get out there in the pasture, they get all fat and happy, and they don't want to work. In the same way, we see that Israel is warned here that they cannot either handle prosperity, and then it's proven to flesh itself out in the book of Judges. Peace will happen for a bit, and then a generation will forget the Lord because it's so peaceful and things are so great and they don't have any problems, and then they fall into judgment. There's another saying. There are no atheists in foxholes, but there's a bunch of them in boardrooms and swimming pools. Now, this is not an indictment on those who prosper. It's an an indictment on those who forget why they prosper. Israel was materially blessed in the promised land, milk and honey. Following Christ doesn't guarantee material blessing. We saw last week it guarantees the opposite in persecution. 
But we need to realize that any blessing that we have is from God's grace. He describes this here, uh, Moses does, when he's talking to them. He explains that they will live in houses they didn't build. And he goes through these lists of things that they will reap the benefits from that they didn't do anything to secure. And the temptation is to think, man, I did it. I'm so good, we did this by ourselves because we're so smart and so talented and so much better than everybody else. I ordered a t-shirt from this Christian band one time, and I didn't look at it until I got home. And when I opened the shirt, it said, we did this on our own. It's garbage. We didn't do it on our own. God did it. But we're tempted to look at every single blessing and see it as the fruit of our own labors and the sweat of our own brow rather than God's grace. Every blessing from salvation to the air we breathe to that bonus paycheck, it is all by God's grace and his providence, not our own skill, will, or ability. They were a bunch of slaves until God got a hold of them. Martin Luther famously said, I did nothing, and the word did everything. Now, he could have bragged. It would have been very easy for him to be conceited and say, I defied an empire. I reformed the church. I did all these things. But he knew it was not him. It was God. We must not forget that we did nothing, and that God did everything. We were dead, filthy sinners until God made us alive in Christ Jesus and washed us in his blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul's teaching on this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Were it not for him, such would we still be. But by his grace, we are saved. It's all of his grace. Do not think for one moment that you did this. Remember that he has blessed us so far beyond what we deserve. Don't forget the Lord when things are going well. If you're here today and you're a person who doesn't believe, and if you're a lost person, I want to tell you every blessing that you have is also by God's grace. It's just common grace. Just the, the blessings that he shows every bit of humanity. The sun coming up. The, the beautiful day outside. The air that we breathe. But I want you to know that there is an even greater grace. If you're lost, if you haven't trusted in Christ, turn to him today. You can't do it on your own. Just the Israelites would inherit a blessing that they did not do anything for as believers When we're saved by his grace, we inherit a blessing that we did nothing to deserve. Outside of Christ, we stand condemned, but God is just to forgive. So repent and throw yourself on his mercy. 
But if you're a believer here today, may we disciple the next generation such that we can say along with John in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's go in prayer. Father God, we come before you today and Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, recognizing that without it, we could do nothing. Lord, your word tells us without you, we can't do anything. But Lord, we pray that today in this place that we would seek to be people who influence future generations to serve you. Lord, I pray that here today you would raise up men and women who would seek to go and to teach others your word. Father, I pray most importantly today that we would be people who love you with all of our heart, with our soul, with our might. Lord, that we would be people who glorify you in all that we do. So, Father, move in us now. Reveal your will to us. Lord, let us be faithful to respond. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.